My name is Sanjeev Gupta and this is Socialism in the Time of Corona. In this podcast, I'm talking with people with deep experience in socialist and left politics, especially in the US. Our overarching question is, during this pandemic, how might we not only defend whatever gains we've made to this point, but actually advance them? Since the pandemic began a few months ago, a million people all over the world have died, one out of five of them in the US. The coronavirus is on track to kill as many Americans in a year as the Second World War did over four years. As in most wars, the dead are concentrated among workers, especially people of color. Among those who've died from COVID in the US so far, about half are non-white. As I've argued in this podcast from the beginning, the pandemic has become a leading political force. Large sections of not just the population, but also of the ruling class are deserting the Trump administration. And in growing desperation, the administration and Republican Party are resorting to wholesale voter suppression and barely disguised appeals to white supremacy. This election is shaping up to be the most bitter, consequential struggle for state power uh, in the U.S. that we've seen in a while. For many reasons, not least the pandemic's body count, it really matters who wins. At the same time, no matter who wins, socialists in the U.S. will continue motivating a wholesale reorganization of social relations, one in which we work to enrich each other, ourselves, and our communities, rather than those who currently own the means of production. For this episode, I discussed the challenges of this long-term work with Sam Gindin, who has devoted much of his life to it. We talked about these challenges both in the context of actual socialist or left electoral victories, as in the case of Syriza in Greece, and in the context of countries like the US and Canada. We also discussed the importance of socialist education, especially in the US. Sam Gendon was director of research for the Canadian Auto Workers Union from 1974 to 2000 and visiting Packer Chair in Social Justice from 2000 to, to 2010 uh, at York University. With co-author Leo Panich, who appears on an earlier episode of this podcast, he has written extensively about the U.S. state's role in globalizing neoliberalism. Most recently, he co-authored The Socialist Challenge Today, Syriza, Corbyn, and Sanders. He is also a contributing editor of Socialist Register. We started by talking about the need for socialists to motivate our vision, something Gindin has written about extensively. Okay, I, I, the question that you raised was, uh, so is it relevant to be thinking about what socialism uh, might look like? Uh, yeah, and, and economic planning in particular. Yes, and I, you know, I, I, I think it's uh, important, but I don't want to separate it as you know, the one thing that you can do that if you, if you have a plan that's credible, that therefore you will win people to your side. It still leaves open the question of 
how would you get there? At least open the question of uh, how do you create the working class into a social force that can actually win it? So it, you know, it's and it, you know, so it raises questions of changing working class consciousness. So they are interested in this question. It raises questions of power of getting there. But I think this is the third leg, because if you want to convince people to make a commitment that is for something that uh, is not imminent, that's still far away, that's gonna be very uncertain because we don't have an example, uh, you do have to deal with this question because if they don't believe it's possible, uh, why spend your time thinking about it or organizing for it or making a commitment to it? Mm. So I think it's crucial to do this. On the other hand, I think it's really important to say to people that uh, socialism is a process. There's no blueprint to pull off a shelf. You have to accept that what we're doing is trying to cope with problems that have never actually been addressed before. We're trying to discover something. We're trying to invent something. So you have to accept the fact that uh, the answers aren't so black and white. But what we still have to do is convince people that it's possible, that there's a potential for it, even if we can't guarantee everything. And one of the big questions in it, there's a lot of big questions, but one of the big questions in it is, if we think that socialism revolves around the question of uh, property in the means of production, in the means of life really, uh, if it means that that has to be socially owned, how do you, how do you materially uh, do that? How do you actually materially deal with the question of it being collectively owned so that we all are part of it uh, and so it's democratic and not just centralized? You don't want it to be overly centralized because then you don't have any input into it as uh, in your workplace or in your community. And it's not gonna be democratic because if it's overly centralized, then uh, you're gonna create a whole new of uh, bureaucrats, a whole new of elites that are gonna control things. On the other hand, you can't say, well, let's just take over each one of our workplaces because then you're not coordinating anything. You don't have a way of making a, a decision about what's important for society as a whole as opposed to the people that you're working with. So it's this dilemma of trying to figure out how to deal with both planning and a certain amount of decentralization, uh, which is the question of how do you avoid bureaucracy and be democratic? That is uh, one of the really hard questions. And I, I think the most important thing you'd wanna convince people of is that, look, uh, here is a way of dealing with these questions. It's very imperfect. Uh, but it's a way of dealing with it. And we think that if we get rid of capitalist structures uh, of class and competition and monopoly over uh, the means of production, if we can get rid of them, then we can actually start dealing with how do we improve uh, the, social, the society we create? Even if it's imperfect, how do we keep over time finding new ways of solving problems and keep moving ahead? And to be honest about it, it's very possible that we will come up against bumps uh, that will move us backwards, mm. that the conflicts amongst us ourselves about how far we want to equalize things. So, so, so I, I think that's the critical question. Are we ready to deal with the complexities, the uncertainties of making socialism uh, as an advance in human society? Yeah, that... I mean, complexity, uh, you know, is uh, 
is sort of the operative word here, because as you said, if we don't actually have sort of really satisfying examples of how to strike this balance between, uh, you know, having things determined at the workplace or at the community level versus some kind of democratic coordination, um, uh, and we don't have, uh, I guess we have all kinds of experiences of partial successes. Um, uh, you know, in the book that you, you and Leo uh, just uh, published, uh, The Socialist Challenge Today, um, uh, one of your cases is uh, Syriza in Greece. Uh, how, how would you say they, did they address the issue before they came to power? Like, what did they have to say about uh, planning and coordination? Well, that's a good question because uh, if we're really going to try to make socialism, there's so much that we have to do before we come to power. It's not a question of just coming to power and announcing to people what we're going to do because we're good people. It's actually a, a question of winning people over uh, to the idea of socialism and going through the kind of struggles that already create all kinds of uh, new capacities and new social relationships. Now, you know, when you look at something like Syriza, I, I think the driving force in Syriza was really the promise of ending neoliberalism. Mm. Uh, you know, it always overlaps with rhetoric about socialism and there's always people, uh, you know, in the party as in Syriza who are definitely socialists and who believe in socialism. But I think that the mobilizing and operative thing in the case of Syriza was ending neoliberalism. And the difficult questions that that raised was, can you have a small country uh, which is so integrated into Europe, which has lost whatever its independent manufacturing base uh, was in terms of the integration, uh, and it was always fairly limited, can a country like that actually move on to uh, get rid of neoliberalism when it's been accepted uh, throughout Europe? So it raised a couple of questions. One is, um, is it possible? The other is that, uh, is it possible if things aren't happening in the rest of Europe? Because if the rest of Europe was actually fighting neoliberalism, there would have been restraints, for example, on the Germans or on the French, in terms of how much pressure was being put on Greece to be disciplined in terms of capitalism, to uh, be disciplined in terms of forcing sacrifices on people, et cetera. But that, that wasn't happening elsewhere. So they were doing this in isolation, which made it extremely difficult. Uh, the other point is that Syriza itself, as a party, didn't want to break with Europe. And its base generally didn't want to break with Europe. Mm. So, so you had a situation where they were already constrained. They were saying, we want to bargain with Europe, but we're not ready to break with you. And that left them very vulnerable. Because I, th I think the reality was that if you wanted to to move in this different direction, you would have already needed to be at least prepared to break with Europe and take the kind of risks that implied, because that really would have meant risks in terms of currency, in terms of autarky, in terms of not having any allies like Cuba did in terms of Russia, for example, they couldn't depend on you know, the Soviet Union yeah. or China, obviously. So it was already fraught and people weren't being educated to what would be necessary in terms of breaking with Europe, because had they done that, they would have lost the election. So it immediately posed the question of, was it more important to win the election or risk losing the election in order to educate and prepare people? 
And one of the comrades, a terrific comrade that I talked to and I raised this with, uh, responded by saying uh, he understood the risks, but he thought it was important to win the election because the alternative was either uh, a, a far move to the right and there was a responsibility on the part of the party to do whatever it could to actually make the suffering worse, which is different than preparing to actually make socialism. The other thing I would just really flag, and I think this is a critique of Syriza, but it's also a critique of the left, even the, you know, even the far left in Syriza. And that is when you come to governance in these early stages where you know, you're not really in a position to introduce socialism, uh, one of the difficulties is how do you govern a capitalist society uh, in a context where if you try to implement things, there's going to be reactions and uh, you don't actually have the capacities in terms of planning to do things. How do you govern with all the pressures of governance and at the same time mobilize the base with the same party doing both of that? And what Leo and I found uh, uh, when we were in Greece was that the movements themselves told us that the left, including the far left, had very little connection to them. Mm. So you didn't have, you know, so you had a left that was critical of Syriza for not going far enough, uh, but didn't actually, you know, wasn't playing the role of mobilizing that base. And that's a very, again, a difficult, complex challenge, even before you get to building socialism, just when you're trying to govern. How do you govern in this complex situation where you don't control things uh, and you haven't really built the base for controlling them yet and you haven't done the education or built the infrastructure in terms of other movements and, and uh, in, in workplaces and amongst unions? How do, you, how do you govern and yet mobilize uh, the base to put pressure on the very state that you're part of? And that's one of the difficult questions I think the Syriza example posed. Mm. I mean, would you, was it realistic for Syriza to ever, uh, you know, uh, sort of prepare for a break with Europe? Or is it that if you get people prepared to make that break, that that itself could constitute the kind of pressure on, say, Germany and France to make them really much more receptive to uh, sort of uh, dialing down or, or, you know, even getting rid of the, uh, the austerity. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, I mean, do you, yeah, were you, were, like, you know, if we, if we just uh, do uh, fantasize about 10 or 15 years ago, would you actually have said to Syriza, you guys should really prepare to, uh, to make the break? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess when, I guess, first of all, when we look at these things that have happened, uh, I think the attitude that Leo and I tried to have uh, was that we didn't, we didn't want to judge what people did in different difficult circumstances. Uh, but what we wanted to do is to assess what happened and honestly learn from it. Mm. And I think one of the lessons is that to make this break, it really was crucial to be analytically honest about what it would entail. And I think that's a general lesson for all of us. We have to be honest about what we're confronting because that affects how we prepare for it. I mean, in Syriza's case, it would have meant acknowledging that to really go forward with this would have meant uh, posing the question with your base about the risk of breaking with Europe. Because if you don't do that, 
uh, you end up in the bind that, of course, the, if you haven't done that work, the base isn't going to be ready to break with Europe, and then you can't do what you need to do. So that was a fundamental question. And then related to that is this question of, if you do that, uh, you, you won't be, you know, the, getting elected will be postponed because there's a lot of people, you know, including in the party, including activists, including uh, university professors, uh, that although they're very left, they wanted to, they saw themselves as part of Europe, not as part of the Middle East, for example. Mm. So there would have been tensions and there would have been splits and you wouldn't have been elected until that was actually fought out. So we would have postponed uh, winning. And, and that's an honest question we have to ask. Sometimes winning an election isn't the right thing to do. We have to ask that question honestly. And the third thing we really have to confront is that uh, although the question of building the base for social transformation, it always has to happen within your own country. That's where you have, that's, you know, you have to transform your state. You have to transform your classes. But what we depend on, especially in a small country, is that this is simultaneously happening within these other states. Uh, you know, there was a hope that, well, maybe Syriza fighting against neoliberalism, but there's the first elected government to actually say we're rejecting neoliberalism. Uh, you know, the hope is that, well, maybe this will inspire people in Germany and France and throughout Europe, but it didn't. Uh, because in those countries themselves, they would have had to be been building the base to challenge neoliberalism. And instead, in a lot of cases, they were hoping to transform Europe rather than transform their own countries. And the trouble with that kind of an analysis is, of course, ultimately, you're going to have to transform Europe. But the place to transform Europe, because Europe doesn't just sit there uh, on a cloud someplace, you'd have to transform each of your states in every country so that you can transform the institutions in Europe because the institutions in Europe stand on uh, these nation states. So, so, you know, I think that's how I would frame the answer to that. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, you know, it over the, the last decade or so, it seems that that's sort of been our, you know, there are these breakthroughs um, or very promising sort of uh, developments in uh, you know, whether you think of Venezuela or Bolivia or, you know, uh, Greece, um, um, and they always seem to occur in these uh, vulnerable uh, places uh, where there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of energy and, uh, and enthusiasm, and maybe in some cases even preparation, but ultimately it doesn't seem like they're the sites that would force the bigger powers to, yeah, to really change um, without changes inside those countries. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I wonder if you, if you think that it's worth doing anyway, because w what's the alternative, um, uh, you know? Uh, well, I, I, I agree with you. I think that when we look at places like Bolivia and Venezuela, um, there's a tendency on the left to look at each of these examples and cheerlead them. You know, this is it. This is the revolution and we have to be inspired by it. Uh, and I think the real lesson is that if we really wanna support those revolutions, there's two th things. One is that we have to actually build a base in our own country. If we don't build a base in our own country, 
uh, we can't really support them concretely. Mm. We can't transfer technology to them if we don't control it, you know, the corporations ourselves. Uh, so we have to be building in our own country. And if we can build in our own country, it creates space for them to do more. And it also creates the material base to help them. You know, we can send, uh, you know, we can try to cancel the loans that they have. We can make connections with them economically. We can, instead of compete with them, try to cooperate with them. Uh, so, you know, that's one thing. And the other thing is we should see these as experiments uh, where people have actually made a breakthrough. That is very important. And the question is, well, what can we learn from it as we go through trying to make our own changes? And in the countries themselves, I think the main thing is that, uh, you know, revolutions aren't just going to happen in a linear way. And I think that's even true in our own countries. You know, we may actually make a breakthrough in a developed country and then find it's re reversed. It really is a historical process. You try to do this. And the trick is how do you do this in a way that advances things forward so you can consolidate them and so that you can either continue to advance them uh, at various paces, maybe slower, maybe faster, but that, uh, you know, that, that uh, you can build a base for continuing this into the future. So it isn't just a question of a leader coming into power and alienating people because it didn't happen the way they wanted and then you give up. Mm. You have to try to do this and then you have to try to build things and then you have to make sure that what you're building has some lasting potential. And then you have to have hope that it's happening in other countries so we have more space to do it. And we have to be thinking about always about how do we advance things in our own country and how do we learn from where it's uh, where it's happening yeah and especially if those countries are like uh, you know the us uh, canada germany and so on then as as you've said uh, breakthroughs there uh, will actually uh, you know just uh, reverberate everywhere i mean it's yeah. um, um well it, it creates you know it creates space i mean you know the question in the advanced countries uh, is on the one hand, they're relatively developed, so they have all kinds of more potential to do things, that they're often more diversified. I mean, the trouble in, in underdeveloped countries is they're integrated into the global economy, but they don't have that kind of local connections as part of their integration that we would call development. So they have mm. a lot of options in terms of uh, how they can internally plan. In the developed countries, they're, they're also integrated, but they have the capacity to think in terms of how could we become more inward development. On the other hand, one of the issues is that in the, in the developed countries, uh, workers have achieved a lot and they've been more integrated. And the question is, do you, are you prepared to risk what you've already achieved uh, to move on to mm. a really richer kind of society, richer in all senses? Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, something that I think will really be uh, kind of uh, on our minds now, uh, especially. Um, uh, so it, shifting gears a, a little bit, um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on, um, on this kind of weird kind of uh, economic planning that uh, countries have been doing during the pandemic, um, uh, you know, out of sheer necessity, just uh, this uh, deliberate, Kind of dialing down of uh, of production um, uh, in ways that 
you know, I've asked various economists and people uh, if there have been historical precedents. And uh, the precedents that people come up with is of the reverse, you know, where the state kind of stimulates um, activity uh, to get out of a recession or uh, something like that. Um, so first of all, I guess I just wanted to ask you if, um, if you have, uh, you know, if you know of any just precedents for this kind of massive deliberate contraction. Um, and then also, if if you think this might offer us any sorts of lessons for economic planning in the genuine, more progressive sense. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and it's really worth, uh, uh, I think, for the left to really think this through. So just, just a couple of comments, and then I, I, I want to get to the meat of your question. In terms of precedence, uh, there is no precedent. There's no precedent of a capitalist economy consciously uh, stopping production. You know, what happened here is that uh, because of the pandemic and because of the need for social distancing, you simply couldn't let people go to workplaces, a lot of workplaces, because that contradicts social distancing and doesn't allow you to get through the health pandemic. So there was a necessity to shut uh, the economy down and then a necessity to support businesses and workers to reproduce them so that they could be there later when you try to return to normal. There's no precedent for this. You could say that during wartime, uh, they stopped the normal economy to move into, world, uh, into war production. Hmm. I mean, during the war, there was a phenomenal, you know, in the US, uh, you know, more than half the, half the economy was shifted into war production. Uh, and, you know, it was illegal to build cars. So you could say, well, what about the wartime? Uh, the difference in the wartime is that the economy was working full out. People were working more hours than ever before. Women were coming into the workforce. So yes, you stop normal production, but you, you, know, but you uh, increase the productivity and the production and the investment in the economy. And because you weren't producing the consumer goods, people were basically saving their money and buying uh, government saving, savings bonds so the savings were being uh, created for paying off what happened after the war, for paying for the war and for paying you know, stimulus and transformation back to civilian production after the war. So it also isn't very comparable. This is very different. Uh, I think it's a mistake to think in terms of what are we really learning from this experience of, uh, for socialism? Mm. I think the lessons for this is, uh, first of all, the lesson is how horribly unprepared capitalism was for dealing with such an emergency. I mean, before this happened, uh, a lot of capitalist countries are either restraining things like healthcare or pushing cutbacks. So that's where they were going. We were very unprepared in terms of saying, you know, we're concerned about making drugs because of the uncertainty about viruses. Drug companies were doing what was best in terms of their own risks. You know, what was it profitable to make? Where is the market? So they weren't making drugs for this. They'll do it now with a guarantee of the governments buying them, but they weren't doing it then. We didn't have the medical equipment that we needed, uh, you know, because companies weren't making them. Uh, so, you know, so, you know, what we learned from this pandemic is that Imagine how horrible it will be when we start thinking about the environment where you can't fix things by saying, well, let's just survive this. 
let's do social distancing, let's do some uh, lockdowns, mm. let's, let's wait for a vaccine and then everything will be fine again. The environment is gonna be a massive pandemic that we're not prepared for. And what socialists would say, and even anybody who's just thinking logically about <laughs> the environment is you can't solve these problems unless you have massive planning. And planning means that you have to control uh, the economy for different purposes. Uh, you, know, what not, you know, what happened here was there was emergency powers and they spent a lot of money, but they didn't uh, requisition businesses to make what was needed. Trump did uh, with ventilators uh, use emergency powers to tell GM to make this, but GM said that uh, they're already planning to make it. But either way, that wasn't, what was needed was kind of a wide, a broad plan of how we're gonna convert the economy or at least major sections of it to deal with what we needed. Well, that wasn't there. There was no big plan. There was no forced conversion. So we would have enough of the equipment immediately. Um, and, and what was being done was trying to figure out how we get back to the old normal. This wasn't precedence for later. Mm. Later on, you can't, you know, this idea of printing money. Yeah, you can do it in an emergency, but if you really wanted to, to think about how you're going to use finance, you'd have to take over finance later and make it into a public utility uh, controlled, you know, democratically. Uh, you'd have to have controls on capital. So they can't just leave when they think that uh, you're not doing what they want. Uh, so none of this was put on the agenda. What was put on the agenda was that there was an economics for dealing with deep recessions or depressions, which is different than the, log than the, than the theory of economics in normal times. And as soon as we get through this, we wanna to return to the economics of normal times. So the lessons we really need to draw is that the pandemic exposed how unequal our society is, how unprepared it is for emergencies, how, uh, you know, even with the people we made into heroes on the front lines, uh, we didn't really change their material conditions, give them more control over health and safety in their workplaces. We didn't extend the right for people to have unions so that they can actually control the workplace. Uh, we didn't give them the right to refuse to work if it's actually unsafe. Uh, so, you know, this wasn't a change in the balance of power. It wasn't a change in the material conditions of workers in terms of more power. We didn't say workers actually understood the importance of the healthcare system and safety in the healthcare system before the pandemic. They were the ones pushing for worried about, uh, you know, raising the question of SARS and how we're just as unprepared as we were for SARS and why cutbacks and cuts in staffing will make things worse if we ever have an emergency. Uh, why aren't we giving them more power to be whistleblowers and to control things? Instead, in, in, in Ontario, for example, uh, the rights of workers were actually limited so the government could use its emergency powers to shift them around to anywhere they wanted. And there was some logic to this in a short-term way, but that's gonna be expanded you know, for, for the longer term. So there are definitely lessons that come out of this pandemic, but there aren't examples of how to do it later. You know, we really have to think about, it's a real warning. It's, it's the canary in the mine about what we're gonna face with the environment. 
it's, it's a warning about how if you really wanna deal with the environment, we're gonna to have to transform everything about how we live, work, uh, travel, enjoy life. Uh, and to do that, to transform everything, you have to combine environmental needs and uh, economic restructuring. And then you have to figure out how to engage workers in all of this. So they support it. And I don't. Th I, th I think we're still far from that. I think the, I think the the, uh, the the this moment teaches a lot of lessons, but I'm not sure we've had the capacity to carry those lessons forward. And the crucial question is, how do we come out of this with a commitment to do the building and the education so that we can build the kind of social force that can actually not just come up with alternative policies or have moral outrage and scare everybody about the environment, but can make them feel like we actually have the power to do something about it. And that really means building the working class into a social force. And it also means, you know, this very big question about, you know, the biggest protest we saw during the pandemic was the protest about policing. And that was tremendously uh, impressive. Uh, because of its breadth and because of uh, the diversity of support for, for it and you know in terms of whites and others that was really impressive but the question is where does it go because it can go in the direction of a deeper identitarian politics which means going in the direction of ghettoizing a lot of politics by saying these are black issues or it can go in the direction of saying uh, these are uh, obviously uh, the condition of blacks in America has been horrific and the question of racism really stinks, especially when you look at the question of policing, but even policing is also a class issue. If you take out all the blacks who are in jail, the rate of white incarceration in the United States is still higher than the total rate of, of uh, incarceration in all the rich countries. If you look at the shootings by police, there's twice as many shootings of whites than there are of blacks, even though the ratio of black shootings is so much higher. Right. So there's also a class issue here that we have to recognize. And especially if we really think about everything that is so unjust in black communities, it isn't just that their poverty rates are higher, they're about double that of whites, but who wants, you know, it isn't much of an ambition to say we just want to be as poor as whites who are suffering through an opioid uh, epidemic or who are losing jobs uh, in the auto sector as it starts closing or where there are white single mother suffering. There has to be a larger ambition. And that ambition has to, as you know, Adolf Reed in particular has always emphasized, to talk about the housing crisis to talk about the education of black kids and of all kids and the education system, to talk about healthcare, obviously. Um, you know, and if you start talking about all those bigger things, not only is it crucial to actually changing lives in black communities, but you're starting to talk about issues that are class issues. And once you do that, it becomes possible to think about how you could actually win them rather than just complain about them. And you can only win them if you can actually form alliances between the white and black working class, not between black workers and black elites or white workers and white elites, 
but to but you know a class alliance, and that does mean that white workers have to recognize that there is a specific kind of oppression historically that has affected black people, and as part of a joint working class, we will struggle to overcome all of that. But it's a joint struggle. Yeah. So Sam, you know, you've touched on something that uh, you know we. Uh, I mean, if I wanted to, I could. Uh, spend you know 24 hours a day like following the uh, intense debates uh, here just on, on this question and um, uh, you know uh, Adolf Reed you know uh, sort of is 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 one of the people you mentioned who's who's very active in in these um, uh, you know the so you know the other way of of thinking about this is to me that um, uh, you know, f f there are there are the uh, people who are sort of uh, studying the uh, the uh, the current movement against police brutality, saying that in fact it is bringing out a lot of those things, whether or not that makes the you know headlines that people are coming out for a whole set of reasons. Um, but it's being uh, sort of uh, you know there is there is this sort of banner. Um, uh, and and it's uh, you know it's capturing a lot of these um, uh, these sort of uh, other dissatisfactions um, maybe not explicitly um, but but that aside uh, you know I wonder if there's something to be said for f sort of thinking about it as you know if if we can't solve the problem of of uh, you know so so a black male in this country in, in the US has a one in 1,000 chance of being killed uh, uh, by the police over the course of his lifetime. Um, uh, and that's, that's more than, it's several times higher than the risk of, uh, that a white male faces. Um, and so there is a way of, you know, that unless we can simply, like it may not be possible to get past that. Well, you know, you know, uh, I, I, I think I think that uh, I think, you know, where you started, I think is very important. Uh, you know, these protests were massive. You know, we've had black people killed and killed on camera before. But this time there really was an explosion. This yeah. is larger, louder than it's ever been. And it seemed, you know, you had a president who was trying to mobilize people in a racist way against the protests by concentrating just on the looting. Uh, by concentrating on the need to clamp down. And he didn't, he couldn't really mobilize around that, except for this, uh, you know, a particular part of his base, which I think will remain, by the way, and that's a real danger to think about. Yes. So this was really impressive. And I think it brought a lot of people into politics, which I think is really impressive as well. Uh, the question is, where does this go as politics? Uh, we can, you know, there is the outrage of uh, the statistic that you raised and other statistics that can be raised about poverty and about housing and is a legitimate outrage. The question is, what do we do about it? Do we ghettoize it as a problem that is only a black problem? Or do we say, look, you know, that, you know, that neoliberalism when it was introduced uh, hurt everybody. It hurt black workers who were in unions and had finally gotten union jobs in the auto industry. The, so the cutbacks hurt black workers who had finally not just been maids, 
but we're getting public sector jobs in teaching and in healthcare where they have a majority. So that it's, it's a question of recognizing that the major things are, that affected us were these collective attacks on people as workers, as citizens, uh, as, you know, as, you know, uh, as mothers, as, you know, as, as everything. Yeah. So the question is, what do we do about it to change it? And neoliberalism served the purpose of fragmenting it in all kinds of ways. So we just try to survive individually. And one of the dangers is that we try to do that with problems like policing and other things. I think what we have to do is make the point that we face these collective problems together, that there are specific elements of that that have been worse for blacks that cannot be denied. And the white working class has to recognize that. That the point about talking about class is to say every member of that class actually merits the same equality and dignity. And we will fight for all your, you know, in every way that you were oppressed in specific ways. We're not gonna ignore the fact that policing is a problem, but we have to fight on it generally. And I guess what worries me uh, is that if we make the focus of fixing the problem, uh, for example, on policing, uh, which I think we should definitely support. I mean, if there's a, you know, if there's a campaign uh, to end shooting against uh, uh, blacks uh, and particularly to deal with, uh, uh, you know, the higher ratio of, we should, obviously we should support that. That's bad policing. But I think that the potentials are higher to move on if we say, look, all the big questions are class questions. And even if blacks are shot more than whites, there are more whites being shot in the United States than there are in other countries. So there's something wrong here that's bigger. And if we have to integrate the two questions, we can't say, you know, first let's solve the black problem. That's not, you know, that's not an effective way of either integrating whites into that struggle, even if they support it, but it's not an effective way of winning all the larger issues that are part of it. For example, if you ask, you know, if you have a poll and you ask black working class families, and there's a lot of these polls, uh, what do you think of policing? And the answer often is that they hate the police, that they're incredibly unjust, but they need more policing because there's crime in their neighborhoods. There's gangs in their neighborhood. There's drug, drugs in their neighborhood. There's black on black shootings in their neighborhood. So, so the point is, if you really wanna deal with those questions, you have to deal with policing. You have to deal with racism in the police, but you also have to deal with all those other issues. And what's good about what happened about, uh, you know, these protests is that they're putting it, this question is coming on the agenda. And it's especially bringing a lot of people into politics uh, at a moment of the pandemic when they're isolated. So now the question is that people, are, if people are coming into politics, let's have a real debate on this question. Let's have a debate on how complex the issue is. Let's have a debate on, well, how would you actually win this? So you're improving people's lives generally. Uh, and I, you know, so I, I think this is a moment for that kind of debate. And it does have to deal with the question of, is the answer identitarian politics? Or is it a class politics that all, you know, class politics always has to start with the fact that the class is so diverse. 
The class is unequal in all kinds of ways. The class includes low paid workers and relatively uh, uh, high paid workers. How do you overcome those things? You don't overcome those things unless the unionized higher paid workers say, we wanna actually have solidarity with low paid workers by having them unionized. And that's the question on everything. You know, any union that's organizing today has to deal with the fact that most of the workers you're gonna be organizing overwhelmingly now are immigrant workers, Latino workers, black workers, and women. That's who you have to organize. And if you're gonna organize them, you have to be sensitive to all their special problems. So I, I think that the class perspective on this, looking at this you know, through a class lens is absolutely critical as long as it's not an excuse to ignore all those other aspects of class and the divisions in the class. And I think it has that potential to do this. And I, you know, and I, I think this is a really a crucial uh, debate. Yeah, I I completely agree with you on that. That it is um, it is a debate. Uh, it's one not just worth having, but uh, but that you know we we should really yeah we're really compelled to do it now. And um, you know, as in many debates, um, it's you know the the debate process itself sometimes kind of I think um, either either makes people sort of say things in ways that they don't really mean or it uh, you know it gets interpreted in certain ways and so on but um yeah. but yeah we 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 definitely need to Can I just uh, say something yeah. on your last yeah. point yeah cuz I, I think that's so important what you're trying to get at there has to be a debate and to the extent possible uh it has to be a comradely debate because but that doesn't mean it can't be a sharp debate there are sharp divisions here uh and we have to confront them, uh, you know. So, for example, uh, Alf, uh, you know, uh, Alf Adolf has made the argument that one of the things that's happening in the black community is that there are that there's there are class divisions in the black community that aren't being openly addressed. There are people who have made it. There are people, you know, there are politicians uh, who have come to power and the, who end up being spokespeople for the black community, but often are speaking for their own interests and using the black community. And I wouldn't deny that there aren't, uh, you know, you don't have similar things, uh, you know, around the question of class uh, in the white community. So the question is, how do we have this debate in a sharp way, because there are sharp issues, but that starts moving us towards getting someplace. And what we can't afford at all because we need each other. I mean, this can be, if we divide class issues into identitarian issues, we're gonna get, we're just gonna be stuck where we've always been. We have to have this, and what we can't afford is silencing. We can't afford to say, if someone is saying the issue is class, that they don't care about uh, questions of identity and inequalities within the class. We can challenge them on whether they do, uh, to see if they're sensitive, and I think that's important, but we can't silence them because, uh, you know, if, if they say the word class, that somehow they don't recognize the complexities within class. And in the same way, I don't think we can generally write off the uh, Black Lives Matter question uh, by saying, well, they're just identitarians, because within that, a lot of people have been brought into politics. A lot of young people have gotten into politics because of what's going on. Uh, but what we have to see is that debate taking place 
amongst all those people coming into politics. So I'm, I'm really concerned that the debate just doesn't be, become fractured into people who have a class perspective talking to themselves and into people who uh, have been brought into politics through black politics, just talking amongst themselves. We have to talk about how class and race have been uh, related. And I think one of the most important points that Adolf Reed has brought into this debate is to say that, to, is to emphasize that that question is a historical question. How they've been related has changed over time. That before the Civil Rights Act, when you talked about black oppression, you had to talk about the fact that uh, the history of America was to deny the fact that blacks were human beings. That was part of that history. And, and confirming that blacks were human beings was a critical part of recognizing the problem. Uh, you know, so they didn't bring over blacks from uh, Africa because they didn't like blacks. They brought them over for a labor force, but to justify slavery, they had to see blacks as not being humans. What happens after 65, and what happens is particularly in the 80s and 90s, is that the black, the oppression of black primarily takes place through political economy, through a legacy of things like redlining housing and developers who wanted to keep blacks out of neighborhoods because that kept prices up. That creates a certain legacy of black wealth, of black education, et cetera. But then it's just a normal functioning of the market. It didn't matter whether you're a racist or not. It, de it depended on regular economics and class politics uh, to create the kind of oppression that exists among blacks. And if we're gonna correct it, we have to recognize both that history, but we especially have to recognize that the neoliberal onslaught was an onslaught on class. It was, that's what neoliberalism was primarily about. It, it, it's about what happens, as Adolf has said, when you have uh, uh, capitalism without an effective class to fight back, a class of that's black, white, Asian, whatever. When you don't have that, that's what you have is neoliberalism. Well, uh, so I think that's, that's critical. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and, and, you know, of course, in the case of the, the U.S., the, you know, the fact that we do have race to contend with means that when you're imposing your, uh, you know, particularly neoliberal uh, sort of uh, program uh, and when you're doing all of these things that, in fact, as you said, are affecting everyone, um, you can either consciously or, uh, or you know, or, or not implicitly, the fact that you're able to use race to inflame the, the contradictions, uh, you know, say something about its continued relevance. So I think that's where some of the, the pushback on the Adolf Reed um, uh, kind of argument as, as in the simple characterization of it that, yeah, that I'm no, using I think, here. I think that obviously you yeah. do not want to start with saying uh, black workers, black people uh, haven't confronted you know, I mean, the statistics are clear. Yeah. When you look at police shootings, when you look at poverty rates, of course, there's more, you know, there's been a specific kind of oppression. 
but you want to also always be asking, well, how are you going to overcome that? Are you going to overcome it by ghettoizing the problem? Or are you going to overcome it by recognizing that part of your oppression as a black worker, as a poor black worker, has to do with the class issues? I, let me just give you a very quick example. Like uh, white workers who are in low paid jobs don't automatically identify with unionized workers and the white working class. A lot of them resent the white working class mm -hmm. because they're stuck in low paying jobs. Uh, white workers don't have solid, you know, historically don't always have solidarity with low paid workers. A lot of white workers have been put in a position where they see white workers or people in poverty who are white as uh, their taxes go to sustaining them. So, so in building the white working class even, it's always a question of saying, look, there are inequalities in the white working class. If you don't deal with those white inequalities, you're always gonna have white workers who are ready to scab or who resent you or don't who don't care about whether there's a clampdown on unions because they don't have access to it. And the message for white workers is in your own self-interest, you have to bring those workers into the white working class and you're not gonna bring them in just by preaching to them that, well, you should join unions and you should like us, mm. you're going to have to demonstrate solidarity with them, like actually make a commitment to changing their conditions. And the same applies to, you know, to forming those alliances. It's not going to work by white workers going to black workers and saying, you should, you should be part of the joint working class. White workers are going to have to demonstrate that they're interested in the oppressions of black workers. Uh, whether it's how laws are enforced or whether, you know, the problems they face in housing or whether it's what happens in the educational system, uh, you know, it, and so, you know, it, it's seeing those problems as collective joint problems and making concrete commitments to addressing, them. you know, uh, yeah. teachers cannot win a strike in a city if they're white if they're not mobilizing parents and if those parents are black that's who they have to mobilize that's where the class alliance have to be built that everybody recognizes that it isn't whites who are making the, the, the education system uh lousy it's it's a class and state thing that is going on here and to unite to change it means you have to change conditions in the school system, you have to deal with staff-student ratios, you have to deal with funding, and you have to build that kind of alliance across the community and across the teachers. And, uh, you know, this is, you know, we're either gonna do this or we're just gonna get uh, picked off individually or in groups and lose. That's really the choice. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, uh... We you alluded to this a little earlier, and I'd like to uh, go go back to it. Um, uh, the, you know the question of Trump, um, and um, uh, you know I'm in a uh, I'm in the DSA here, and um, uh, uh, you know it's a very broad organization, so there's people with all kinds of views about the two parties. Um, but I think it's fair to say that a common view is that. Um, it doesn't really matter that much um, uh, whether the next president is a Democrat or whether Trump continues. Um, uh, 
especially in light of the really depressingly uninspired, uh, you know, credentials and performance of of Biden. Um, uh, uh, do you do you have something to say about this? Like, should we be really kind of, you know, uh, afraid of another four years of Trump? Yeah, I mean, uh, politics matters. It matters that Trump is there or not. Now, the question of whether it matters in terms of, uh, you know, is a democratic administration suddenly going to be, uh, you know, a step towards socialism? Well, of course not. Uh, but, you know, the reason that Trump matters is to elect Trump again is, first of all, to endorse what he's been doing, to endorse his racism, to endorse his authoritarian streaks, to endorse his giving confidence to the far right. These are very dangerous things. And, uh, you know, so we have to be worried about Trump being endorsed. What the election has to be, and I think a lot of people have picked up on that, this is a matter of uh, rejecting what he stood for, you know, in terms of the wall, immigration, uh, Hispanics, I mean, everything. So, you know, he has to be defeated. On the other hand, you know, we do have to recognize that actual change uh, depends a lot more than a lot more than just electing somebody better. And that would have been also true of Bernie. Yeah. Uh, actual change means that we do the difficult work of building the base organizationally, doing the educational work, creating, you know, doing, we should be having schools everywhere. That's what should have been happening since Bernie first showed that there's a base for this. There should have been schools in every major large city uh, of developing cadre of people who can go out and tell people about socialism and you know restore some historical memory to the working class, develop organizers, and organize in that way, create our you know institutions. We have to build, we have to have our own campaigns, you know, there's obviously going to be a fight around healthcare with the Democratic Party, because they don't support universal healthcare. But what that has to do is build national networks on the left. So we don't just fade away after this election, or we don't just fade away after Bernie. And if we can't build that kind of base, then yeah, we're going to have Democrats who are going to be pushed from the right and from, uh, you know, the elites uh, in ways that harm us. So we, we should be opposing Trump, but not creating illusions about what it will mean. I think that going so far as to say it doesn't matter harms our case because it does matter. Uh, it does matter in terms of democratic issues, which are, you know, bourgeois liberal democracy matters to us. It creates space for us to work, but it's still bourgeois liberal democracy. If we want to go beyond it and really realize democracy, we have to change uh, primarily the question of the economy and the ownership of production, but also how our cities and lives are administered. So the most important question is that elections are a moment in politics. They matter in practical terms, but they also matter because they're a moment when people are paying attention and you can put things on the agenda. They are limited and they're especially limited if we haven't first built a base so that when we get elected, we still don't have a base for what we know how to do. Yeah. So the most important question is, how do you build 
that base? How do you mill, use the election to build that base? And how do you, after the election, continue to build that base? If we don't build that base, nothing will change. Yeah, thank you, Sam. You know, among the the people that that I talk to about these things, and primarily the kinds of people who would be listening to our conversation, um, you know, there's no confusion or disagreement on the question of, uh, you know, like there's no issue of having illusions about uh, the Democrats. So it's really about um, how. F what does it mean to say that, you know, we we don't want Trump to to get elected again, are we saying we should be working actively with, uh, you know, the the Democrats on this? Like, how far does defense of liberal democracy go? Is it mostly about casting our own vote? Uh, is it about, you know, endorsements or putting our weight behind it in some way in terms of resources? And, uh, uh, you know, the default attitude, I think, is... Uh, so I probably facetiously characterized it as that it doesn't matter. I think probably most people I, that I would be talking to would 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 say that it does matter. So it's it's really well. Does it matter enough for say a, an organization like DSA or just socialists generally to come out and say, you know, go out and vote, and it's actually important to work to make sure that this guy doesn't come back again. Um, uh, and so I think that's where the differences are. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, 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 I mean, you know the American situation far better than I do. And I don't suspect that there's a lot of people who would say it doesn't matter and want to run around uh, mobilizing around it doesn't matter and ignore it or something. So I, yeah. I agree with you. I think, I think the question is uh, being clearer about what it matters so we can articulate it. Mm. I think mm. that, uh, you know, uh, The, the, the trick is that it matters. And at this point, you know, going to the election, it actually matters very much because there's not a lot of other things to do. It's not clear what else mm. is really going on. So in that sense, it's something that matters. And I think uh, the role of the left, the role of the left in the DSA is to help people understand that it does matter. This is a dangerous man. He represents dangerous things. He's re reinforcing dangerous things. If he wins, he will be able to do even more dangerous things. He will cut off spaces for us to, to operate in. So it matters very much. On the other hand, the question of really changing things, the question of how we got to the point that we ended up with the Trump mm. has to do with what we didn't do before. And we shouldn't have any illusions that just getting rid of him solves our problems. And I think the left should be saying that, that yeah, get elected on going door to door, Get elected on telling people why they should vote against this guy. Use the chance to actually say that, of course, there are, be honest about it. Of course, there are limits to the Democrats. But what, you know, and we're going to have to confront those later. And we're going to have to mobilize around that later. But the most important thing is we have to learn that if you're not building a base, you're going to be vulnerable to people like Trump. Maybe next time it'll be more dangerous. Maybe mm. next time we'll have a smarter Trump. So, so you know, we have to see this as a left. You know, I mean, the soft left will silence its criticism of the Democrats and just be out there saying, uh, this is the most important thing you can do is vote for the Democrats and, and they've got a good program. And Bernie Sanders is saying that 
Biden's program is the most progressive program since FDR. That's what they'll be saying. I think our role is to stress it is important. It is limited. We have to always remember that before, you know, that we have to be building our base because that, you know, that's how we ended up with Trump. And if we don't build our base, we'll end up with a lot of Trumpism anyways, or maybe even a more dangerous Trump. And that's our message. And I, I don't think that prevents people from choosing how much of a commitment, how many days a week they want to go door to door knocking, <laughs> uh, how much, you know, whether they want to contribute to a campaign in their local area. Uh, a lot of this will end up to be about supporting local people, yeah, that's people true. at the state level. And I think people can figure out what they want to do and what they can't stomach. Uh, you know, people will figure it out. But I think that's what the basic line has to be amongst, uh, has to be amongst, uh, you know, intelligent people of the left. And, I, and, you know, it's really what I've been hearing from DSA people mm -hmm. anyways. And uh, yeah. I, sh I should say, uh, when are we going to end this? I have to be off someplace. Oh, uh, if you have a few more minutes, sure. I can ask you another. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, then I'll give you both yeah. questions and you can choose. Um, so, you know, you talked about local levels and, uh, you know, DSA and DSA endorsed people yeah. have had a bunch of victories. Um, uh, and even in our town here, people have been talking about running for the city council to do things yeah. like defunding the police. So one question is, you know, what should these folks be realistically trying to to do in these positions, uh, uh, you know, when they get them. And the other question I had for you is just, um, uh, you know, living here in the U.S., we look at, we continue to look at Canada with some envy uh, with respect to the the response to to the pandemic. And so I was going to just ask you to make your own comparison of Canada's response and the U.S.'s. Um, okay, maybe I should. Um start with the Canadian thing. Okay. Uh, uh, so, so, you know, first of all, Canada always looks good when you're comparing <laughs> it to the United States. And, and when the American, you know, when the United States has Trump as president, almost anybody looks good. So, so you know, so, so that's there. And then Canada does have a healthcare system, which is important. And I don't want to uh, poo-poo, it's been very important. And uh, Canada, I think generally, has taken the question of healthcare seriously. So those are, <clears throat> those are positives. On the other hand, <clears throat> excuse me, on the other hand, um, you know, we should also be, have no illusions about Canada. I mean, it isn't as if Canada uh, said that, well, we've got an emergency and now we have to treat it as a major emergency and we're gonna put a lot of companies under either government ownership or we're going to force them to start making the things we need. That's not happening. It's not as if Canada is saying, uh, as we did during wartime, let's have a massive taxation of the rich and a massive wealth tax because we've really seen how, you know, it's really shown how unequal society is and who can pay for things. So we haven't seen that. Uh, we haven't seen Canada, you know, they give credit to the heroes on the front line, but we haven't seen them uh, either give more power to workers or actually give them the equipment that they generally need. A lot of, in a lot of cases, that equipment is still being uh, rationed. Uh, we haven't seen changes in union rights or making it easier to unionize workers so they can have union protection given the, how important health and safety is. In fact, in Ontario, 
you know, the largest province, uh, they've actually taken away a lot of union rights in the name of the emergency mm. without taking away those rights from corporations. And the threat is that it wasn't just temporary, that it can be extended. So I really don't want to, uh, people should not have illusions about Canada and they shouldn't lower their sights uh, to Canada. That's not gonna help you very much. And just a final example, people look to Canada because our unionization rates have been double the United States. And that's relevant. But if you look at the two countries right now, there's actually a lot more energy in the working class right now than there is in Canada. If anything, a lot of Canadians are looking to struggles in the United States, such mm. as the teacher struggles. Uh, and you should actually be proud of the struggles that you have, even though they're in the scheme of things uh, uh, mild. And you should be proud of the fact that uh, you actually had a Sanders moment. We haven't had anything like that moment. Mm. Uh, so you should also see that. And I guess, I guess, I guess, your final question: What, what, what? You know, the position of the left on these local victories. Uh, you know, I, I kind of have a mixed feeling on it. On, on the one hand, it's really important. That's how you build a base. It's, it's what you can do right now. It's much more interesting to be doing things locally or regionally uh, than trying to change the Democratic Party, where, you know, you're not going to have much luck changing. And even if you came, you know, if you ever came close, you'd be crushed. So uh, I, I think that that kind of activity is important and it should be thought of as building a base. It should be thought of as not becoming opportunist politicians to get elected, but to be uh, to get elected by telling people what you stand for and winning them over to that and giving them some confidence and inspiration by doing that and giving people a hope that there actually are structures like these local things that if you can get involved in, it will matter. So I think that's very important. On the other hand, I, I think we just have to see how far it remains from building locally, uh, politically locally, to actually penetrating the working class. And I don't think that DSA and the left in the United States is very close to doing that. Uh, unions are still distant from the left. And I don't just mean the union leadership, I mean at the local level. And that's one of the real challenges that have to happen. And at the same time, it has to happen as part of some kind of a national presence. I think it's important for you to choose a few issues, you know, whether it's health tax, uh, health, universal health care, uh, taxing wealth dramatically, uh, shifting your focus to conversion for the environment, not shifting, but really uh, taking advantage of that, but doing it in a way that engages workers. That isn't about just the slogans of Green New Deal and transitions, but actually asks how to engage in worker struggles and link them to conversion for social use, which then we can tie to the environment. Uh, how do we actually ease union uh, barriers to unionization? Not because if there were more union density, that itself will change things. But if you can ease the rules, maybe then unions can see that this is a once in a lifetime moment to actually start unionizing. And if they commit their resources to do it as a crusade, that could begin a transformation of unions and bring new leaders in, new blood in, uh, and bring in all kinds of you know, young workers and others who want unionization because of what they've seen in this pandemic around the question of health and safety, et cetera, and inequalities. So there has to be a way of thinking strategically on a few issues that can build a national movement 
and on how you actually embed yourself in the working class again. Because when the working class was healthy, when it was really exploding in terms of unionization, it was because there were socialists and communists in those communities and in the workplaces, figuring out how you talk to workers around their own issues, but put them in a broader context. And I think it's only until we learn how to do that again, that we can actually dream about transforming America. And if you can transform America, you know, or even start to transform it because you'll be creating spaces for all of us. That's what all of us are longing for. We have to do this in our own country, but if you aren't doing it in your own, in the United States, at least doing some of it, uh, it makes it so much harder for us everywhere. This conversation affirmed my own view that socialism will succeed or not depending on developments in the largest, most advanced capitalist countries like the US and Germany, not in countries like Venezuela or Greece. Still less should we aspire to some hazy internationalism. Unless socialists in the most powerful capitalist countries win significant victories, the scope for socialist or even broadly left politics in other countries will remain severely circumscribed. Gindan also argues, and I agree, that mass socialist education is of the highest importance for our work here in the US. We also need to educate ourselves on issues such as the tension between what's called identitarian and class politics. Gindan argues that socialists in the US have always needed to recognize differences among workers even among white workers, while advocating for class solidarity across these differences. This is certainly a valuable reminder that the challenges of class unity across other lines are not new. However, the history of racialized slavery in the US makes class solidarity here especially challenging, both analytically and in practice. Significant advances for socialism in the U.S. will require us to openly and wholeheartedly embrace this challenge. Speaking of socialist education, upcoming guests on this podcast include Hadas Thir on Marxist economics and Vivek Chibber on class. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it. <laughs>